Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me, as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We're recording these podcasts from our homes, and so you'll often hear children playing, dogs barking, and babies crying. This is our life, and we love it. Our hope is that as we discuss these scriptures and truths, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. Hello, everyone. We are doing our next episode of the Come Follow Me podcast here with Latter-day Peace Studies. This week, we're doing sections 49 and 50. And we've got uh, Christopher Hurtado here with us today. Hey, Chris. Hello. Good to have you. Uh, Shiloh is occupied with academic pursuits at the moment. <laughs> and so Christopher has agreed to come on this podcast with me uh, when we're doing these sections 49 and 50 today. And so I'm really looking forward to Christopher's insight. He always gives fresh ideas and really good analysis of scripture. And so I really uh, respect Christopher's perspective, and uh, good to have him here here with me. It's good to be with you. I'll see what I can come up with. The last time we podcasted together was how long has it been? It was years ago. It was I was. I'd have to look at the date. It's probably been at least four years. Yeah, you and Shiloh were interviewing me on on the LDS Liberty podcast on Islam. What did we call that? It was like building bridges. Mormons and Muslims or something like that. <laughs> yeah, we had a good discussion. That's something you and I both studied academically. It was great. I've gone back and listened to that, I don't know, Me half too. a dozen times. <laughs> Same here. Yeah, you had some really good insights, Ben. Yeah, so yeah, I really I really liked that. So yeah, again, really excited to have Christopher here with me uh, discussing these sections here. There's some themes that we have really been returning to quite often as we've gone through this discussion of the Doctrine and Covenants. And to a certain extent, it's different type of discussion that we have with the Doctrine and Covenants than we were able to do with the Book of Mormon, because it's not the same type of narrative. And I think I've mentioned this before, but I used to look at the Doctrine and Covenants as almost like this complete compilation of all the revelations that Joseph Smith ever received. And um, <laughs> now as uh, as I have looked at more of the history context of it and everything, I'm realizing that, no, this is like, you know, selections from the revelations that Joseph Smith received. They're not always in chronological order. They're selected for particular reasons. And then some of them are edited in a particular way. And some of them are combined and divided. And so we have a, a highly edited version, so to speak, of, of some of Joseph Smith's revelations here in the Doctrine and Covenants. And so it sometimes can be difficult to to pull the the whole narrative that we would like out of this. We have to go to a lot of other sources in order to get some historical context. And not only that, we have to look at these revelations within the personality that they're given through, which is Joseph Smith. And we have to realize that so much of what we're given here has Joseph Smith in it. And there's really good reason for that. Really, it, it, we're so far removed from a lot of these ancient scriptures that it's hard for us to kind of see the prophet themselves 
in the ancient scriptures, even though it's there. And these are much more present to us. We know much more of the history of the character of Joseph Smith. And so it's a lot easier to see sort of that character and personality and perspective and maybe even bias that we could say of Joseph Smith coming out in these revelations. And that's that's just the way it is. You know, when we approach scripture, it's it's good to understand that that's the case. And I think it helps us see it in a, in a more real way. And, and it can bring it closer to us personally and realize that, that the Lord works with us in an individual way with a lot more grace than we might have, have previously been, you know, been willing to accept. Yeah, I very much agree with you on that. And one of the things that's characteristic of the Doctrine and Covenants, as you know, going back to Islam as, a, as an Islamic scholar, as an Islamicist, I can see how it's very much like the Quran in the sense that it is the revelations are situational. And some of the things that you pointed out too, the idea that it's not all in chronological order, um, some of the other characteristics, maybe definitely all of these revelations are situational. And they come as a result, they often come as a result of questions. Right. And I think that's something that'll come out in today's discussion. I remember when we, some of the classes that we took at BYU on Islam, one of the comparisons that we did in a discussion was between these founding texts and and how there were some sort of structural similarities between how the Doctrine and Covenants is presented and how some of the stuff that happened with Muhammad. And so that, yeah, that was a very interesting type of comparison there. There's there's obviously a whole lot more to be said about that, but a very interesting topic. Yeah. One other thing I can say is that they're about the same length in, mm-hmm. in all and about the same number of sections too, or uh, surahs in the Quran sections and the Doctrine and Covenants. I, I just think that's interesting. Yeah. Some even called Joseph Smith the American Muhammad. <laughs> That's true. That was always polemical. It was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There was a, there was a, a master's thesis written by someone around the time I was graduating with my undergraduate degree at BYU that made a non-polemical comparison between Muhammad and Joseph Smith in the prophetic pattern. Mm-hmm. And that's out there. I've seen it out there on the internet. I, I had it. I got it from Professor Hauglet, I think it was. But it's out there on the internet. I met the author. He was actually, I was registering my kids for seminary. And he was the guy that I was registering my kids with. And we, we got to talking and I realized that that was his master's thesis. Oh, wow. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. As we dig into these sections here, section 49, this is a section, the context of this here is the church coming across a another Christian sect, the Shakers. And the Shakers have some unique ideas about how they are, are experiencing God and religion and so forth. And they're kind of another outgrowth of this great awakening movement and a lot of stuff that's going on at the time, you know, revelations and visions and new ideas about God and what he's going to do in the millennium and second coming of Christ and all this sort of stuff. So the Shakers are this other movement that's sort of grown out of this. They're a movement that that persisted for quite a while. And I believe they're like as a people and as a culture, as a, a religion, is pretty extinct. Um, I don't know if you know for sure, but I, I believe that it's it's kind of gone, the tradition, so to speak, has ended of the Shakers nowadays. But it did persist for for about 150 years or so beyond this time period. So we have this one person, uh, Lehman Copley. He had been part of the Shakers. 
He's come over to Joseph Smith, but he's got some of the ideas and doctrines that he were important to him and he's brought them and he doesn't want to give them up, right? These are important to him. And for some reason or another, you know, Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon, I wonder whose idea was in particular, but they decided it's very important for Lehman to give these up. <laughs> and so uh, Joseph Smith has this question, how are we supposed to approach this? So he goes to the Lord to get an answer. And this sort of brings back this theme that we've been discussing in the Doctrine and Covenants is that the Lord answers the questions that we ask. A lot of times the answers that we're getting are very flavored with what we expect because they are answering a specific question for what we're looking for, right? And so here, Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon and Parley P. Pratt, they're looking for a way to to co-opt this movement, but in particular to persuade Lehman Copley to let go of this, these uh, these shaker ideas and fully embrace the ideas that Joseph Smith has been receiving. Verse two really stood out to me here. It says, behold, I say unto you that they desire to know. Now, in this revelation, this reference is to the shakers. It says, they desire to know the truth in part, but not all. For they are not right before me and must needs repent. And man, I read that and I was just like, well, that's not just the shakers. <laughs> no. That's like everybody, right? I mean, who, who, when they're, they sit down and they're really honest with themselves says, I want to know it all, you know, because as soon as you start receiving, you're like, okay, that's enough. <laughs> I really yeah. just wanted a part. <laughs> I'm not ready for everything. And so the Lord then gives us line upon line and precept upon precept. That verse two just kind of made me chuckle a little bit because it's like pointed at the shakers, but it really, in my opinion, is talking about every single person. Yeah, I was reminded, as I mentioned to you pre-recording of St. Augustine, who famously says, give me chastity, but not yet. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, proceeding here, we, we have uh, the Lord laying out very you know basic principles of the gospel here, trying to sort of build this foundation where he's going to go after, so to speak, some of the doctrines that the Shakers think are, are important, or I should say Lehman thinks are important. Obviously, there was much more to the Shaker tradition than just what we have here in this section. Well, and one of them is, is probably key, right? It's probably central. And now the Shakers, uh, you know, this is a nickname, right? The the Shakers right. were the United Society of Believers in Christ's Second Appearing. Correct. That's mentioned in the section heading here. Yeah. Oh, is it? Yeah. So it's we're told that they are, um, that one of those beliefs is that the second coming has happened in the person of Anne Lee. And so that's pretty, you know, pretty different from our idea of the second coming, right? Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, as to your question as to whether they're still around, I, I hadn't thought of that. I guess it's easy to conflate them with other movements uh, like, um, I don't know, like the the pacifist group. What is that? What are they called? The Quakers. The, the, the Quakers. See, the Shakers and the Quakers. There you go. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think Shakers, I think the nickname comes from sort of their Pentecostal nature, doesn't it? Yeah, so there there is a little bit of that there. I, I remember studying this once, but I, I don't remember the particulars of it, so I'm not going to say I'm not going to talk about it because I I might say something that's incorrect. So yeah. it is a it is, however, actually a a pretty rich religious tradition, and um, doesn't get 
any of the treatment it deserves in this section because that's not the purpose of this section. But um, you know, it might be interested interesting for people to to take a look at it. I remember watching a documentary about it once because the Shakers, like I said, they were a tradition that was dying out literally because they didn't believe in marriage. They weren't and procreation. They weren't having children, and so it was all about whether you know you're going to join this tradition or not. And if you know there weren't children born into this tradition. What ended up happening is they literally died out. And in this documentary, they went and interviewed and talked with this woman who was the last known follower of this religious tradition, this older woman. And anyway, I'd have to look it up, what this documentary was. It was very interesting. Yeah, it's funny you should mention that because it occurred to me, yeah, this this movement isn't going to last if nobody gets married. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's that's one of the issues here. One of the things that they they don't believe in in marriage, it's celibacy that where where it's going. So one of the things that's uh, addressed in here is that it isn't correct that you should forbid to marry. Um, it references basically it, it doesn't say Adam and Eve by name, but it says here in verse sixteen, wherefore it is lawful that he should have one wife, and they twain shall be one flesh, and all this that the earth might answer the end of its creation. In verse 17, and that it might be filled with the measure of man according to his creation before the world was made. So there's a couple of things here. One, you know, talking about how marriage, it says, is ordained of God. For marriage is ordained of God unto man, verse 15 says. This is a good thing. This is a correct thing. This is what God has intended. If someone individually feels like they need to be celibate, that's between them and God. But there's not and never has been some divine decree that people should be celibate. At least that's, that's what this revelation is pointing out here. The Latter-day Saint as such, or quote-unquote Mormon conception of the family and eternal marriage, is not a thing at this time. It's not exactly clear how much Joseph Smith's ideas on plural marriage were at all developed during this time, or all even apparent. Um, that's a that's a whole nother huge can of worms and discussion. But certainly the conception that we have now of eternal marriage, or even the idea that was around in 1844, right before Joseph Smith died, isn't anywhere near to what the saints are practicing or believing about marriage and family at this time. The idea of the family is just a, a within the church to this time is just a very traditional type of family structure. There's no, there's not a whole lot of religious context to it beyond just the traditional American Christian type of of family. That's why verse sixteen is a little interesting here because it says one wife. That is interesting, isn't it? <laughs> Whereas we have this development in later Latter Day Saint theology of of polygamy that that challenges this concept, right? And so, yeah, you know, it's a, how do we contextualize that? I'm not really sure. You have any thoughts, Christopher? You know, the only thing that that came to my mind is to mention not only do we have this idea of of plural marriage, but we have the idea that it is uh, an eternal principle. And I can think of one person who wrote persuasively against that, and that was uh, Professor England, who was a an English professor at BYU and very much a philosopher in his own right. One of my mentors mentioned who was a neighbor of. Uh, his his widow, uh, Charlotte England, mentioned that he felt like that England's 
essay was the most persuasive case against plural marriage and yet still wrong from at least from my mentor's <laughs> point of view wrong from a historical doctrinal uh, point of view meaning or? Or meaning that it would be incorrect to think that plural marriage isn't an eternal principle contra gotcha. england and yet i mention england because we don't really know right do we can we say we know this that plural marriage is an eternal principle i'm not sure so if you're if you're looking for a good source against that idea eugene england is the one to turn to yeah i mean it, certainly within a latter day saint context it's not something that you're going to find in any manuals published within the past 50 years <laughs> right that touts this as an eternal principle as plural marriage as such but if you go back journal the discourses and you read Brigham Young and John Taylor, you know, if you don't get plural married, you're you know, you're damned. So Absolutely. There's or or not necessarily if you don't get plural married, if you're not um accepting of the principle, I guess is right. is the idea. So but but that's not the only thing, you know, that that Brigham Young uh, in particular taught that today we would say uh this doesn't fit within our theology anymore. And so right. again, you know, that it I don't mean to necessarily go down this this tangent too far. It, it definitely fits within this, but don't mean to go down it too far. But it it is an interesting question and something that I think bears maybe a longer discussion. Probably not for sure this podcast. But <laughs> and let's not forget that we you know we have uh, President Nelson today saying that if we don't call the church by the name of Christ, then the devil wins. And and we have Brigham Young calling us Mormons. Sure. For, for what that's worth. We have Joseph Smith calling us Mormons. Of course, yeah. <laughs> so we can't be too, become too uh, concerned about these nitty-gritty details, I sure. think. There's some contemporary cultural context to, to even doctrine, right? And we see a development of doctrine. Of, sure. of Yeah, a, a development of doctrine. Yeah. You know, I always say everything that is said, as a philosophy professor, this is something that I said a lot, everything that is said is said in a context. Hmm. And so dropping the context is actually one of the most serious mistakes we can make in exegesis. Right. And that's a good point. Let's see if there was something before. Um, oh, you know, verse 8, I have a, a question mark by, and I, I, I wondered if you had any thoughts on this here, Chris. Um, in verse 8, it says, I will that all men shall repent, for all are under sin, except those which I have reserved unto myself, holy men that ye know not of. Isn't that interesting? That really got my attention too. So huh. two things here, right? One is all men shall repent for all are under sin. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. We're all yeah. sinners. We all need repentance. All of us. And yet now we have the second part. There are these holy men that we know not of. Who are they? Right. If you were hoping I was going to tell you, Ben, I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't know who they are. Well, I just think the fact that this really is a true question is is interesting to me. I love that we don't have the answer to this question. <laughs> because me too. It, as as Latter-day Saints, we just love having an answer to every single phrase in the scriptures, right? Oh, yes. this refers to this and this refers to this and you know, go look up uh, Joseph F. Smith and Doctrines of Salvation and he'll tell you exactly what this means, you know. <laughs> and and I I just love that there's some things in here that are like, wait, what does the Lord mean? I don't know what that means, but I can speculate, right? Because <laughs> that's always yeah, fun. And that idea <laughs> of going back to the to whichever prophet you want to pick that has the answer right. reminds me of 
and, and I'm not saying that there is necessarily a contradiction here, but it's interesting to note that we have this idea that the Book of Mormon is the cornerstone of our religion. Keystone. The keystone. Thank you. The keystone of our religion, not the cornerstone. And <laughs> and we have, um, who was it that wrote uh, Doctrines of Salvation? Joseph Fielding Smith, right? Joseph F. Smith. Joseph F. Smith, see. Joseph F. Smith was Hiram's son. Okay. And then we had Joseph Fielding Smith that came later. Later, okay. I always get the two mixed up. Uh, it reminds me of that primary song, Remember the F. Yep, that's how I remember it. <laughs> yeah, and see, I wasn't <laughs> in primary. primary. I joined song. the church at 11, so I didn't get primary. Maybe <laughs> okay, one year. there you go. <laughs> and that was in South America, so who knows? I don't remember what the songs were. So we have this statement from Joseph F. Smith then in the Doctrines of Salvation that the Doctrine and Covenants is the most important book of Scripture for us. Huh. And again, there doesn't have to be a contradiction. I like yeah. taking on what Joseph F. Smith has said. And you know, this is revelation that was given to us, not only for us. The Book of Mormon is supposed to be for us. This is to us. Mm-hmm. And so there, there maybe there's something to that. And, and the Book of Mormon is still the keystone of our religion. Interesting. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, this, this phrase, though, holy men you know not of, what this evokes for me, I mean, we... Section one of the Doctrine and Covenants, the preface, actually references people other than Joseph Smith that the Lord has given revelation to, that he's called upon to do his work. And I I love this phrase here because what it tells me is that the Lord is calling upon men everywhere, all over the world. He's calling prophets within their cultural context at their particular time and giving them truth that they need in order to um, help people understand who God is, bring them to him within the, the, the cultural context that they need, within the, the capabilities of those people. You know, Alma 29, he talks about the Lord wanting to or sharing the gospel with the whole world, all the truth that he seeth fit that they should have. In any case, I th- this here, again, harkens back to section one for me um, and other parts in scripture where the Lord's work is much bigger than this little upstate and New York church, right? Yeah. Or even this global church today. Sure. Even the global church today. Absolutely. Of course, bigger than than what he's doing in this one little state yes. in in New York with this people within a particular cultural context of American Christianity during the Great Awakening that has all kinds of baggage with it, right? Yeah. And there's so much more going on in the world that God is doing in order to bring his children back to him. So anyway, I I love this verse because it it evokes both an awe of God at what is he talking about here? <laughs> and yeah. the and the the breadth and um, expansiveness of his work, and also the humility that we should have with regards to what the Lord has entrusted us with. So, Yeah, if we think of it in terms of it's bigger than what's happening in upstate New York in the 1800s, one way of thinking about that is, well, this started in Palestine a couple thousand years earlier. Mm -hmm. And so there's more to, you know, we can say there's a great apostasy and there's a restoration, but there's still there are Christians and there are people following Christ and there are people um, that God is revealing himself to. And we can even go outside of our, of the Christian tradition. Absolutely. You know, to, because if we don't know who these holy men are, that doesn't mean that they're hidden. They're just hidden to us. Because if, if the Buddha is one of them and I don't realize it, then, well, 
I don't know, right? As it says here, right? And in the Islamic tradition, they have they say there are 124,000 prophets. Mm-hmm. That that number is given, but they're not named. Mm-hmm. It's not known who they are. Mm-hmm. And some of them are named. A lot of them are the same prophets named in the Bible, but they're not all named. That's interesting. For some reason, I'd never come across that. Yeah. You know, a lot of times those numbers in scripture, it's like, okay, is that a literal or is this telling us, look, the number is enormous, which it yeah. sounds more like to me. You know, it's just a really big number and it's more than you can count and more than we can name. And so be a little humble about, you know, what you think you have in terms of truth. <laughs> right. <laughs> and in that tradition, there is also this idea uh, among some Muslims that maybe those prophets are in the Far East, you know? Mm-hmm. outside of the Islamic tradition, so to speak. Yeah. Did you want to go into any, anything else here in verses 16 and 17? That's up to you. Did you have any any other thoughts on that? Well, we, we lightly touched on some ideas, you know, pre-recording in terms of the what I'm calling the mystery of conjunction. Yes. Which is an, al- an alchemical term. Yeah. What's called syzygy. Syzygy, by the way, is used. We just had a supermoon last night. That um, and there's going to be another one in May and June, or it wasn't the night before last. There will be another one in May and June. Uh, this is this is a term. Again, it's an astronomical term, and it's an uh, perhaps an astrological, and it's definitely an alchemical term when it comes to the the aligning things up and pairing of opposites. I like to think about these things in terms of again when it says becoming one flesh. Right. This is the idea of the the man and the woman coming together, and even the heaven and the earth. The heaven is is symbolically masculine. The the earth is symbolically feminine. They come together. It comes to my mind also to mention the idea that there will be a new creature, a new heaven, a new earth. There may be something here we could go into. Do you have any thoughts about that? Well, so there is an idea sort of this this idea of this proto-Adam, right? The Adam that was before Eve, that wasn't that he wasn't Adam per se, right? That he was something else. Um, he was Adam and Eve in one. And you know, in the, the Latter-day Saint tradition, we we kind of have this dramatized as Michael, right? And we, we have a whole other narrative around that. But but in any case, he has a different name before he's Adam. And he becomes Adam when there's Eve, because Eve came from him. And so it's sort of this division. You you have a proto-Adam, and then you have a division into Adam and Eve. And then the idea is that symbolically, man and woman are to put aside their differences and come together and be fully united in the same way that ultimately we are to unite ourselves to God and become one. And and so this is this is that idea here that we have we have in our theology the idea of the gathering and it's it's a much more foundational or fundamental principle that permeates a lot of these other doctrines that things are to be brought back into one together united both metaphysically and then also like eternally in in sort of a a divine way where we're united with God. And so again, we have this concept of of Adam and Eve and I just I just thought it was kind of evoked here as the whole purpose of the earth being that 
things are eventually united back into one. I mean, this this references Malachi and and uh, hearts of the fathers of the children, children to the fathers. This tying, uh, sealing, you know, all of the generations back into one, and so it's all kind of part of that package, so to speak. Yeah, and what you're saying here about Adam and Eve again applies to to heaven and earth too. You know, they they're they're one, they're separated, and what does the the new creation look like? What what is the what does the new heaven and the new earth? What do they look like? And so I would just say, you know, for anyone interested in in thinking about that more, maybe they could turn to Carl Jung and his writings. There's a whole book on the mystery of conjunction. It's really interesting. Right. He has that's one of three books on on the psychology of alchemy. Alchemy is thought to have been some kind of proto chemistry where maybe a better way to look at it is, as our, our friend Morgan Aldous has said, is it's that, that chemistry actually lost the plot. And these aren't Morgan's words, but it's alchemy denuded of its spiritual and psychological and its deeper meaning. Yeah, yeah. It's much deeper than than a material sense. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, the, the main ideas behind that being a, a separation into parts and then a combining back of those parts into something that is at a higher uh, level of existence or purity or order of glory, we might call it in terms of like a, you know, uh, salvation type sense than what it was before the division even. And so, yeah. And to go, or, or at least to return to what it was before, higher, I'm open to higher too. Yeah, that's exciting. Yeah. You know, to go yeah. back, to go into a little bit, and this is something that when I, the first time that I came on this podcast with Shiloh, I think to sub for you, we went into this a little bit. We talked, I can't remember what, it was back in the Book of Mormon. I can't remember what chapter or week it was, but we talked about the idea that there, that in the garden, there is unity. And that the fall and leaving the garden means going out of unity into duality and that going back to the garden, and we are supposed to go back to the garden. You know, you have cherubim and the flaming sword, but they're not there to keep you out. You're supposed to go back to the garden and to the tree and to partake of the fruit of the tree. Right. What's not welcome in the garden is the lower order and what the cherubim are guarding the garden from is not from us, but from duality. Right, they're protecting a higher order, as you've actually called it, right, from a lower order. And so to be able to return to the garden, to return to the presence of God, to partake of the, the fruit of the tree, we have to check our duality at the door. We have to become one. Yeah, and and you know, the more you go with this concept, the more gospel principles, so to speak, you can draw into it because it really is – it really kind of cuts to the core of a lot of – these these concepts of nature of God and our nature and our relationship with God. And so there's there's a whole lot of meat on that bone, so to speak. Speaking of meat on bones, <laughs> we have these next verses here that talk about abstaining from meat. And so one of the things that the Shakers brought out... Or, can I just say one more thing? Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, can I just say one more thing? I, I'm hoping you can come back to speaking yeah, of meat absolutely. on bones. That's a great transition. <laughs> um, you know, to, to say one more thing about the, about the garden, when I say uh, checking our, our duality at the door, when I say door, you know, 
the garden is a walled garden. The, the meaning of paradise, it's actually a, a Persian word that means a walled garden. And there are there you can look at ancient Persia for these walled gardens. In fact, you can look at the Taj Mahal, especially if you look at a an aerial photograph. You'll see the walled garden. You'll see the four quarters. Right. You'll see the, right. the fountain at the middle and the four rivers going out and all of that. Uh, and that well, it's the tabernacle, the Taj Mahal. you know, in the wilderness, it's the tabernacle and, you know, the Jewish tabernacle in wilderness as well, you know, Israelites. It's all, it's that yeah. same pattern. Yeah. And so, and to, to go to the Buddhist tradition for an analogy, when you go to a Buddhist temple, they're going to be these threshold guardians. The cherubim are threshold guardians. And they're these, I don't know how to describe them. They look like monsters, I guess I'll say. We'll just say monsters, which is a pretty generic term. One of them has its mouth open and another one, they're side by side at the entrance. And by the way, if you go past them, if you do get past them, what you find, of course, is the tree and the Buddha sitting under the tree. Yeah. And there's even in the mythology, there's even a, a serpent called Mara. So these guardians, one has the mouth open, one has the mouth closed, and these symbolize the one with the mouth open, ah, and the one with the mouth closed, mm. And if you put them together, if you actually bring those opposites together, you can join them, then you get the sacred syllable om, Primordial. which represents yeah. everything, everything taken as it's a creation. whole, the unity yeah. of all existence. Yeah. And so it's, it's just yeah. like the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. Yeah. Yeah, I, 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 I knew, you know, the more you go, the, this gets more and more profound, the more you go with it. There's so much there that relates to, to so many ideas that we have, um, not just in our faith tradition, but all these other faith traditions, just as you, as you mentioned. And so there's all kinds of fascinating things there. Um, they get, you know, you brought up the linguistic part of it, which always, always fascinates me, you know, that, that proto, that primordial creative awe, right? Um, and it's, uh, yeah, very, very interesting types of things when you, uh, start, start down that path. <laughs> yeah. I didn't, I didn't mention, of course, you know, I, I'm comparing it to Alpha and Omega because the, the I and the um are the first and last letters of the Sanskrit alphabet, just like Alpha and Omega are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. So it's the same idea. Yeah. Now let's talk meat on the bones. There, there is some meat to chew on here, isn't there? So yeah, we we have this. These next verses go after the the Shaker belief that they shouldn't eat meat or that uh, people shouldn't eat meat. We have several ideas brought up in this before they get to the actual not eating meat thing. So verse 19, For behold, the beasts of the field and the fowls of the air and that which cometh of the earth is ordained for the use of man for food and for raiment and that he might have in abundance. So elsewhere in the Doctrine and Covenants, it talks about the earth being full. There is enough and to spare, so to speak. And so this this next verse kind of puts a little bit of context to, context to that as well. But it is not given that one man should possess that which is above another, wherefore the world lieth in sin. And uh, I know you have uh, some more things to say about this, Chris, that are that are really good. So the idea here, we we live in a, I say we, you know, especially like in the United States, we live in a world just drenched with abundance, right? Like 
we we have pretty much anything you want at any time just right at your fingertips anything you want to eat or wear or see or do yeah there's a material abundance and a spiritual poverty and i think they're right. related right and because so much of our focus gets put on that material abundance because of because of how readily it is available to satisfy whatever appetite and so you whatever appetite or longing or 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 deficiency you feel can be satisfied materially so easily right that there's there's no there's no actual consideration of any of the the spiritual aspect of that and and part of that i think is is one of the the uh, the great wisdom in the concept of fasting yeah. that that comes about you know obviously there's more to it as well but but i think that that uh fasting is is a very a very profound and and wise concept that that helps temper uh, at least our our contemporary experience of of material abundance but uh in here you know Chris you were talking about especially verse 20 uh I want you to share your thoughts on that yeah well so one thing I'll say before I go into that is you know as we seek to satisfy all of our carnal appetites let me call them carnal appetites let me not uh hold back right <laughs> we we find often with you know with the with the material answers to them we often find ourselves and we may or may not even realize this but we're often really just starving right as we glut ourselves we remain in starvation because they're not what we lack uh, what we lack is spiritual and man cannot live on bread alone we're taught right so this is there, there's a lot to this and and we become desensitized to our lack, to our true lack, uh, by all of these things that are distracting us from what matters most. And a lot of it has everything to do with, as you said, the fact that it's all there. And when it's there, it's not just that you can go to the store and find it, but even if you're not looking for it, it finds you. Right. right? There's advertising, there's marketing, There's it's always being put in front of you. Wherever you turn, there's somebody's you know touting the value of some material thing that's supposed to make you happy right that's supposed to fill the desire that that people the desires that people have that that they, that it really can't that they, these things really can't fill and so one of the things when it comes to our our lack of sensitivity that i think is interesting about verse 20 oh you're asking about verse 20 i was thinking about verse 19 ben I want to go into verse 19 a little bit because oh, you can talk about whatever you yeah, want. <laughs> just, you know, just because the idea, wait, is it verse 19? I'm sorry. I'm, I want to jump ahead to verse 21 as it relates to verse 19, right? Okay. Because on okay. the one hand, we shouldn't, uh, no one can say that, that the, that the animals aren't ordained for the use of man for food and for raiment, because here it is, uh, we're being corrected in that thought, uh, in this Quaker thought, right? by this verse, by this revelation. And yet in 21, we get, and woe be unto that, uh, woe, un, un, woe be unto man that sheddeth blood or that wasteth flesh and hath no need. Mm -hmm. And so this brings up questions in my mind. I don't, I don't want to give answers, but I want to raise some questions. And the question is, do we have need of all the meat that we eat? Do we have going to the Doctrine and Covenants and, and trying to relate the two sections, the two revelations? 
Are we in a time of famine to justify eating any meat, yet alone the quantity of meat that we eat? Is it a time of winter or famine? If it would be, if we think about winter, is that even relevant in a world where we can get something other than meat year-round, whereas at the time that the revelation is given, meat is how you get through the winter. It's either meat or potatoes in your, in your uh, what do you call it, the vegetable cellar? Those are the things that you could have through the, the root cellar. The root cellar, yeah. And those are the things that you could have through the winter when you couldn't get fresh produce. I can get fresh produce from anywhere in the world around the corner today. So these are questions, right, that, that I think we should consider. And then the question becomes, especially in a context of peace studies, if we are if we're not sensitive to not not just to not just to shedding blood and and I think here the context is clearly the blood of animals but to to doing so wastefully and without actual need then could this again a question could this then make us less sensitive to the shedding of human blood you know are we going to be less sensitive in general to bloodshed i'm reminded of of general grant who in the war between the states well backing up you know thinking of his childhood he his father's a tanner he grows up with with the blood and the sweat and the smells and the you know their their animal there's killing of animals there's well the tanning right the the taking the hair off the hide and all this yeah for the yeah. rest of his life he he only it's eats messy. meat if it's yeah it is he only eats meat if it's overcooked now i'm not saying he didn't go vegetarian or something but he only would eat meat if it was really cooked and he had a really hard time with the carnage and he gets this bad reputation for being a butcher just throwing large numbers of you know larger numbers of union soldiers after smaller numbers of you know, of, of uh, secessionist or Southern or rebel soldiers, whatever you want to call them. And yet he really couldn't deal with, you know, he, he, he couldn't deal with the, the shedding of blood. That wasn't something that brought him any pleasure whatsoever. And he took no pleasure in victory even, or, or certainly, well, he took pleasure in, in a victory that ended a conflict, but not in, but, but was never gloating. Right. And was always wanting to return to, to peace and brotherhood with who he saw as, as his compatriots, you know, as his fellow Americans. So, you know, the question in my mind is whether we would be more sensitive perhaps when it comes to shedding blood in general, if we were, if we were more sensitive to the shedding of blood of, of animals, especially when it's needless. And that's, again, relative, right? What, what is our situation? Those are just some questions that come to my mind. Yeah. And this discussion always comes up and I think it's, it's an important one that we need to keep having. And, and especially in the context, you know, we talked about this a little before of, of not just, not just the fact that of how much uh, meat is consumed, but, but how, how it's, how it's processed in terms of the, the, on the mass scale. Right. And, yeah. and it's not, it's not treated as, as a creation of God, you know, it's, it's treated as, as just, you know, put it on the conveyor belt and let's, let's get the, let's get the beef out there. Right. <laughs> yeah. There's an objectification of, of the animal as an other that, yeah, that is paralleled by the objectification of supposed enemies. Right. As somehow less than God's creatures. Right. Yeah. 
you know, the, this this evokes the. I mean, the first time I, I think this comes into a scriptural context, at least chronologically, if we go back to Noah. You know, so Noah, you know, the ark lands on the land and he builds the altar and offers sacrifice. And then the Lord says to him something to the effect of, you know, all flesh I will require at your hands. And, and you know, the Lord seems to be saying, hey, if, if you end up needing to kill and eat meat, you, you better have a good reason for it, right? I think that's a, a perspective that as a people and maybe more importantly as individuals, we need to reexamine in our lives, if this is something that the Lord is pointing out to us that that actually could could help us in our spiritual understanding in a broader context. Yeah. So thinking about verse 20 then, since you asked me about verse 20 now that we've covered 19 yeah. and 21, yeah. sandwiched in between is this idea that looks separate. It doesn't really look like it has to do with, with, um, with the cons- consumption of meat or shedding of blood of animals at all. And, and, you know, if we see something new here, maybe there is something, but it doesn't look like it, but it is not given that one man should possess, we read that which is above another, wherefore the world lieth in sin. And my reading of that, it looks to me like what, what it's saying is that if, if someone is in need while I am stockpiling and I'm not sharing what I have that I don't need with someone who's in need, then there's there's sin in that. Somehow I've missed the plot. I'm missing the mark, uh, to use the literal translation of of sinning. Right. I I think about a lot of a lot of listeners, you know, in, in a U.S. audience at least, are familiar with John Locke's ideas about property and you know the idea that if I claim something and mix my labor with it, then it's mine, and you have yeah property in things and and in john locke's time they didn't talk about property isn't a piece of land they would say i have property in the land but if you go back earlier to islamic natural law theorists they have a little bit of a different idea and i want to share that so i'm thinking of abdul jabbar and this is back in the 800s 900s somewhere in there and they have the idea that everything that god created is good and this is obvious because God is good, and so anything that he creates is therefore good. And then the next idea they have is that whatever he created is good, for because if you say it's good, then the question is good for who or good for what? And the answer is, it's good for man. Mm-hmm. And the reason they say that is because it's not for God. God doesn't need anything. He's self-sufficient. This is the idea of God, at least at that time. And still, you know, that's kind of the Christian definition, yeah. too, or the even the monotheist definition in general. And so whatever he creates must be good for man. And so then there's the idea that that there's enough to go around and that all you have to do is lay claim to what you need and you can lay claim to as much as you want with the caveat that there is enough for everybody else. Do you see how that works? Right. You can You can claim as much as you want as long as there's enough for everybody else. And so the question is, is there enough to go around? And if there is enough to go around, then why is there so much want? And the answer could be, as we find here in verse 20, because some possess that which is above another, and therefore the sin that we find ourselves in. What do you think, Ben? 
there's really so much there. Like if we we would get into the problem of poverty and so forth, because there's there's a lot of uh, political and cultural and historical reasons for so much of the poverty that we see in the world that it can feel very overwhelming and difficult to deal with from an individual point of view. But I think what you you brought up a point about this that I think can shed some light on it and and I don't think I don't think my insights are particularly profound on this. It's just this was my train of thought as as you were talking about it. You know, you you were talking about how we lay up in store instead of you know helping those around us and and it made me realize that we are putting our potential future needs in in this in this context we are putting our own individual future potential needs above the present needs of our neighbor actual present needs right yeah actual present needs and perhaps lacking faith and not trusting that sure. when we need if and when we need in the future that will be provided for right by that god who has provided enough for all yeah and that's not to say that you know like food storage is inherently wrong or anything it's that it's about priorities right like and and intentions like what is the purpose of this? You know, I, <laughs> I, I always chuckle because whenever there's, you know, you sit in an elders quorum and, and uh, whatever, and whenever there's like a, a, a topic, a discussion where food storage or preparedness comes up, right? Almost always I'll hear some reference to like guns or weapons. Oh, yeah. You know, so that you have that stored as well, right? Well, you have to protect what you've stored, right? Yeah. That's right. And, <laughs> And it's like, but your purpose of storing it isn't primarily for yourself. Your not purpose necessarily. of storing it, yeah, not necessarily, would be that anybody else that didn't, you would be able to help them. And so that's a different perspective. You have the storage so that when this happens, your neighbors know who they can come to, right? To help. That's a really different perspective from the one that we get in Elder's Quorum where people are talking about guns, right? Sure, sure. And and you know, I that hasn't happened in in every elder scrum I've been in, but it's happened sure. in enough that I know it's a it's a pervasive attitude it is. that I that I do actually feel is is going away as people are starting to maybe understand a deeper purpose and principle of of what we've been counseled to do in terms of storage, but I think that that we have this culture in the church of this food storage, right? And and I think that that idea um, has unfortunately led people to uh, down the path of believing that they need to be more concerned with their own personal future needs than the present needs of those around them, just like you you were talking about. At least let that be a question, right? Right. Uh, uh, a consideration. You know, the, this idea that you know we we look at the present needs of our neighbor i think you, you kind of alluded to it as well you know it's sermon on the mount stuff we you know sufficient is the day and the evil thereof we don't take take no thought for the morrow you know when when we've contextualized this it's not so much you don't think about what's going to happen tomorrow at all and prepare for it it's that you're not over anxious or worried about your needs being met tomorrow and so you're living in the moment and that's what i see here you know you're you're living in the present and in the present your neighbor is hungry 
Yeah, it's interesting to think about the possible misunderstanding of the idea of food storage that you mentioned, because we we have recently the church has come out against, let's say, preppers. Can I say that? Is that the idea? Excessive hoarding. <laughs> right. Yeah, because look what happened, right? So if there's a misunderstanding and things become lopsided, then now it has come to a point where the church has actually come out and said something, right? Yeah. Yeah, I do remember hearing something about that. So, so any all, all that to say, you, you know, verse twenty. I think there is a difficult concept here to to wrestle a little bit with. That I think each of us kind of has to self-examine. This isn't something that you can prescribe very well on another person. This is a like a self-examine type of thing, right? And say, hey, am, am I really abiding by this principle here, which is that. I have a responsibility to to help others. You know, when my material needs are met, then that means I I'm responsible to to find those that I can assist as well. This is a common theme, obviously, throughout all of Scripture. But one of the things that's a little bit uh, different about this, I think, is that it seems to be hinting at some some equality beyond what we might culturally be comfortable with. <laughs> yeah. Do you think? Maybe, yeah. And a couple, I would say a couple of things. You know, one, certainly I'm, I agree with you, Ben. I'm not going to prescribe anything here. I don't have anything to prescribe other than uh, I would just invite each of us to personally consider and not to, I'm not saying uh, check to see if you've already considered. I would say consider, right? Let, let's pause. Let's pause a moment and think and, and ask the question as Joseph Smith has done so many times, and that's why we have all this revelation before us, is because there was a question. And so when we ask that question, I found and personally that when I have questions, if I just take a minute, I often do it in, in writing, in my journal. If I have a question, I'll write the question. And as I write it, as soon as I write it, and, and I typically do this on a keyboard, and I, I hit that question mark key, the answer comes. Ask and you shall receive. I've found that that's true, that that happens. And so let's ask the question and see what answer we get. So there's some discussion here about Zion, but I think we're going to leave that for some later sections because uh, this is you know, one of the central themes here. So we're not going to have any lack of discussion of Zion <laughs> in these later sections. But I do want to touch on verse 28 because uh, this this returns to a theme that Shiloh and I discussed in a previous podcast. And it's this phrase, I come quickly. You know, it's Jesus saying, I come quickly. And uh, I know, Chris, you had some thoughts on this, but I want to sort of uh, summarize what Shiloh and I discussed before with this and then and then hear what you have to say. I have to add to this as well, because I, I think that's it's useful. So we have this idea that that Jesus is basically coming next week, right? And, and this is this is pervasive among the saints at this time. This is a very uh, millennialist type of, of movement. They uh, are all gathering. They're preparing. You know, Christ is going to come. He's going to kill all their enemies and save them, right? <laughs> this is right. this is the narrative. This is the idea. And and um, I'm not saying all of them believe this, but this is certainly the, the, the trend 
this this raises this question here. It's actually kind of a two part one, and and one is is that what Jesus really means in this revelation? Right? Does he really mean I'm going to come next week? And if he doesn't mean that, because it it seems apparent at least from our our perspective right now, and we can we can discuss this as well. I think you have some things to say about it. It, it seems apparent from our perspective right now that Jesus didn't come next week, right, in, in 1831. And so if he didn't mean that, what did he mean? And if he didn't mean that, why did he let or allow the people that received the revelation and interpreted it at least at the beginning, why did he allow them to think that's what he meant? And uh, so Shiloh and I kind of d- discussed this a little bit, and and one of the one of the ideas we had behind you know the I come quickly is is more of a an interpretation that really hits more at an individual level rather than at a global level, and um, this is that Christ comes to each of us individually, and we see many scriptural examples of this. It it fits perfectly with every description of Christ coming, and so this is not to say. Christ is coming individually instead of coming at a global level. It's that this is a deeper, more profound meaning. And the Christ coming at a global level is actually the symbolic prophecy of him coming at the individual level. And so that's that's what I take these references to mean. And I take them to mean that because they are more useful to me. As an individual, what am I doing today? How am I viewing my relationship with God and those around me? And if I take it as, you know, Christ will come to me quickly, there's there is some some depth to that that is probably inexhaustible in terms of of you know, like a moment of contemplation, I think. And so there's so much there that is so rich. And valuable and and very humbling. So to the second question of why did he allow them to think that? You know, <laughs> it it actually as soon as I asked that question, you know, this is kind of what we talked about before. As soon as I asked that question, like the answer comes because it's like God allows me to think things like that all the time, <laughs> and he does it because I'm not ready for anything else. That's what I'm ready to understand in that moment. And it's useful for that time for me in in where I'm at with my relationship with him. And it's good. And when I'm ready for something more, there's more. There's always more when I'm ready for it. Yeah, let's not forget that. There's always more. There's always more. And and, uh, there was a talk by Elder Eyring some years ago. And he talked about when he was receiving Revelation one time and and that he would ask, and he would get an answer, and then he felt that it was like part of the answer was you should ask if there's more, right? And that that really hit me at the time when I heard that. I was like, you know, we can ask if there's more. We may not we may not always be ready for more, but the Lord will be ready to teach us line upon line, precept upon precept, when we're ready for it. And there's no condemnation there. It's all grace. It's all love and mercy to where we are and what we're prepared for. And I, you know, I was listening to podcasts that you did. Was it with Jana a few weeks ago? 
And and one of the things she said that I that I thought was I've been thinking about. She says, you know, you're always right where you need to be. Right. That was with Janice Spangler on the Latter Day Contemplation podcast. Yeah. Yeah. We've had her on a couple of times. We just had her on again. That that podcast will probably come out with this one. So you know, Ben. First of all, let me ask you this: with that um, Henry V. Irene talk that you mentioned, that's something that I remember Richard G. Scott going into all the time. Is that was that Scott or was it both Scott and Irene? Do you know? Uh, I could have sworn it was Irene. Okay, because I remember Richard G. Scott saying that we should always ask, is there more? He, he said, ask, write down the answer uh-huh. and ask, is there more? You know, maybe Irene was quoting Scott. <laughs> maybe, yeah. <laughs> That's happened before too. That's a good question. I'll, I'll have to go back and look. In my mind, the voice that says it is Henry B. Irene. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I remember that from Richard G. Scott, and I really miss him and his talks. Yeah. I really do. Although they were often the heavy talk. You know what I mean? Well, his his voice had a tone and a cadence to it that that yes, I did love them. They were they were always like very comforting, but they were also like comforting in a in a way that if he spoke on a Sunday afternoon session, I was asleep. Like he would, his voice was so soothing. <laughs> That's true. But when I say they were heavy, you know, the topics were serious. Yes. They were heavy. And then he did also have that voice. I loved his voice too. I miss him. Well, so I have some ideas about this too. You know, to the second question, why does he allow us to think? Well, he doesn't tell us what or how to think right. on the one hand. On the other hand, I agree with you. You know, if you if you look at the Old Testament, it looks like God has allowed to, people to think all kinds of things about him that aren't true of him. I really don't think they're true. You know, the the ancient Israelites thought that that Yahweh was their tribal warrior god. Right. And I don't think that's true. Right. I don't think that that the that the incarnation of God in Jesus Christ shows us that. As to the as to the first question, you know, to the first question, what does it mean that he comes quickly? I think in terms of again, in terms of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, as Richard Rohr puts it, Christ is not Jesus's last name. And so the possibility to consider that maybe there's more to the Christ than Jesus. Now, does that mean Jesus isn't the Christ? No, of course not. Jesus is the Christ. And yet, so can you, is how I always like to put it. Jesus says that he never did anything uh, save he saw the Father do it. And then he says, come follow me. And it looks like we're to do all the same things and become saviors on Mount Zion. So, Right. Christ is a title. Right. And a type too, right? So we can be types of Christ in a sense is what I'm saying. So if there's more to the... If there's more to the Christ than Jesus of Nazareth, then the second coming could not only be some kind of individualized, personalized incarnation or or apparition or maybe not apparition, but some kind of theosis, some kind of vision or experience that we have, but it could be we ourselves. So if we think in terms of God coming, not only coming quickly, but you mentioned a verse pre-recording where he's coming to his temple. What is that temple? Of course, there's the building, but that building is really a symbol that points to Christ, and it could even become 
as, as almost anything can become an idol, right? We can make an right. idol of the temple even. Right. And as a matter of fact, there's a verse that says, I know we're not going to go into Zion too much. Zion, the new Jerusalem, the second coming, the, are they the same? Are they different? Have the ideas changed? They have, you know, maybe we're not going to go into all of that. And on the one hand, I feel like I get a pass. On the other hand, I do have some things to say. Maybe, <laughs> maybe I'll get invited back. We've toyed with the idea of, of you and I and Shiloh all having uh, the opportunity to, to talk together on one of these episodes. I'd love to get in on that. But there's a, a verse in Revelation. I think it's, it's, sec- it's, it's uh, chapter 21, verse 22, that says that there will be no temple in the New Jerusalem because Christ is the light. So the temple, in some sense, it looks like it's pointing to Christ and that if there is Christ, then there's no need for the temple if he's actually present. So then the temple can be the one that we're told in the Bible, in the New Testament, that we are the temple of God, right? That our body, uh, our body is a temple of God. And the thing that I always like to point out to people is that, that, that you when it says you are the temple, that you in the Greek is not singular, it's plural. So it's it's good to think of as our as our own bodies as temples and and the standard interpretation is helpful and you know keep them clean and when it comes to our thoughts and our actions and what we take into our bodies, all of that is fine and good. But what the verse is really saying there is that we as the community of Christ are the body of Christ. And so He's going to come to us. We we are going to, it looks like, as Rob Bell puts it, in Jesus Wants to Save Christians, it, which is an excellent book, it looks like the God of ancient Israel, which of course is the, the same God that we believe in, is looking for a body. You know, they're creating idols to show what God looks like. And God is saying, no, I want you to show what God looks like. And he takes them out of uh, slavery in Egypt, uh, out of servitude, where they're building someone else's, you know, where they're building an earthly potentate's empire. And what happens? Now, the, the son of David, not Jesus, but the earlier one, this King Solomon, what does he do? He actually enslaves people to build a temple to the God who frees people from slavery, building temples to earthly potentates and empire and and he's actually he's a weapons manufacturer and dealer this is not that somehow the israelites have lost the plot and so if god is looking for a body for the body of christ right for us to be the temple to which he comes and for us to show the world what it means to be what what that god really looks like and so to be christ-like then Again, the Israelites lost the plot. We may be off a little bit too, maybe more than a little bit. And so I think there's a lot for us to think about here. And I'm just beginning to scratch the surface of the things that I have to say. I'll give you a chance to respond. <laughs> yeah, you know, when, when Shiloh and I discussed this, it, it one, of the, one of the scriptural accounts that came to mind about this coming quickly in this sense of this, this individual experience of Christ was Alma. And, you know, Alma is, Alma 36, you know, he's talking to his son and he's explaining his experience of, of being in this torment and pain. And, and then he remembers that he can call upon God in the name of Christ 
to receive a forgiveness. And it says, as soon as he does that, in the very instant that he does that, he receives that relief, right? It goes away. And quickly. Yeah, quickly, right? So that evokes this for me that, that this is the day of your salvation. And, and elsewhere, and, you know, it talks about in the Book of Mormon, it says that, you know, immediately the plan of redemption will come, will take effect, you know, will come to pass. It's, it's not this like, you know, oh, you know, you've got to go through, you know, several months of this thing, and then you get to this point in the repentance process, and then you go through a few other months of this point in the repentance process, right? Like, repentance can literally be instantaneous quickly. It's simply a change of our perspective and our direction pointing towards God. The direction we're facing, right? Right. Yeah, the direction that we're aiming that arrow, right? The the one that that the archery term hamartia that we translate sin means missing, right? To miss yeah, the mark. Yeah, to miss the mark. You know, yeah. I have a, an answer too, uh, an example that is, uh, another example. And that's and this is something that, that Riley and I talked about on, in one of our episodes on Latter-day Contemplation. That is the example of the brother of Jared. You know, if you think about Moses, he has this experience of the burning bush. And, and to back up in the story a little bit, we read in the scriptures that that God is aware of Moses, and God is always aware of Moses, wherever he is. But the question is, is Moses aware of God wherever Moses is, yet alone right. wherever God is? Is he really aware of where God is? And so in this in this story that we get in the Old Testament, God is, as it were, saying, Yoo-hoo, over here, Moses, right? <laughs> There's this burning bush. And as he comes closer and he becomes aware, whoa, I'm in the presence of God then he realizes I'm on holy ground and it's doff your sandals, right? Take off your shoes. You're in, you're in a holy place. Now he doesn't get to see so much as a fingernail of God, right? There's this burning bush. And by the way, it's not surprising at all that a bush is burning in the desert because it's so dry. If any, if, there, if, if it would in any way get, you know, catch flame, it's going to burn. What's interesting is that it doesn't, it's not consumed, Right. And that's what has Moses curious enough to get closer to find out what's going on. But he doesn't see so much as the fingernail of God, yet you have the brother of Jared who sees the finger of God. So this is a really big deal because before him, there's Moses and there's that story. Now you have the brother of Jared who sees the finger of God and he's done. Why is this happening? Because the question is, how could I see the finger of God? How could I make it true that the Lord comes quickly for me? Because once that happens, the Lord comes quickly. He goes very quickly from the finger of the Lord to seeing all of the Lord. The Lord cannot prevent him from seeing him, right? The, the, right. the veil is parted completely, and, and you get the full presence of the Lord. And so how does this happen, and how do, I, how do I make it true for me that the Lord comes quickly? How do I, how do I make myself, uh, how do I prepare myself for that? And the answer is to purify myself. And as a matter of fact, again, with Morgan uh, Aldous, who we had on the, on the Latter-day Contemplation podcast a couple of times to talk about alchemy, the work that that uh, Jared, that the brother of Jared does to prepare himself in such a way that he would see God is alchemical. He's doing this outer work with these stones that that looks very much like alchemical work. And that outward work, again, is, is only symbolic, right? The, the work that the alchemist does in the lab, so to speak, is symbolic of work that's happening on the inside. And the point is not to find 
gold, for as the alchemists say, our gold is not your gold, right? It's not, we're not talking about what you think we're talking about. Right. You're talking about spiritual gold. So we're talking about purifying ourselves such that in this crucible, right? In this, and this crucible, by the way, is life. God has set, set this up for us such that it, it's there, right? If we're willing to, to do the work, we're in the lab already. We're in that alchemical lab. All we have to do is, you know, get to work on doing the work of purifying ourselves, of, of really submitting and being in that crucible and purifying ourselves such that we're prepared to see God and for him to be able to come quickly. Yeah, I really loved those two podcasts you guys did on the, the alchemy. The, the second one really hit home for me when you went through the Beatitudes and what really just like hit me over the head and and rang true with a bunch of the other things that I had been thinking about with with Zion and so forth was when he got to the culture of mercy. That just like really fit so perfectly with a lot of the other things that I had been thinking about and just made some connections that I needed that uh anyway, I just uh, it was awesome. I liked I liked that discussion that you guys had there. I'm glad you enjoyed it. So uh that was section 49. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's let's get into 50 here. 50 is a Hopefully it's shorter. Is it shorter? No. I said hopefully it's shorter. <laughs> it's, it's significantly longer. But um there might I don't know how much uh, meat there is comparatively here, but section 50 the historical context of this is 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 some is a little bit different. The you know again the the church is arising or rising out of this context of the great awakening and you have all of these spiritual experiences happening at this time to all kinds of different people um, in and outside of the church and as people join the church and they're they're being sort of brought into a a standardization of doctrine so to speak right we've got an authority uh Joseph Smith and he's receiving these revelations and We've got this new scripture and things are becoming a little more institutionalized than they have been in this. This great awakening was just like this, this religious marketplace, right? Yeah. <laughs> and now we've got this formation of this institution that um, is, is becoming a little more uh, rigid may not be the right word, but, but it, it sort of gets the idea a little more rigid in terms of of how things work and and the ordinances we're going to use and the doctrines we're going to believe right there's like straight up revelations that are like manifestos of doctrine and and this is what we believe maybe we could say it's becoming more delineated yeah yeah that's probably a good way to to put it but we still have this broader culture of all of these these different types of religious experiences happening and the the saints here at the beginning, they don't know which ones are legitimate and or not, right? They don't know which ones are really from God and which ones aren't. And so we get this section here that that has a discussion of this. And what's so interesting about the discussion that this section has of this to me is that there's not a very good, like cut and dry definitive answer here. The answer ends up being you know, well, like with everything else, ask God and he'll give you the answer. Which is a great answer, by the way. Yeah, which is a great answer. And and but it takes, you know, a lot of verses to explain that. 
Yeah, and 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 when I say hopefully this is shorter, there may be more vor- verses here, but there may be uh, sure. less to talk about. And I'm open to spending as much time with you as we have. But you know, it's a really good answer, and. Because let's say, okay, in some sense, because we're delineating things, we have these people who are having all these spiritual experiences, right? Before they came to know Joseph Smith, that was already the case. They come to know Joseph Smith, in some sense, it's just more of the same, whether I'm a Quaker or whether I'm following Joseph Smith. And yet, Joseph Smith is, as we saw in section 49, he's saying, well, no, it's not quite as the Quakers say. Right. Let, let me set you straight on, on, on some of this doctrine. Okay, you've got it wrong. That's not, that's not exactly it. It's, take, it's this over here, right? And so in some sense, to delineate things, we have to say, okay, who is it that is an authority to, to speak for God? You know, who is the prophet and you know, which of these revelations are valid. And and in some sense, it's to point you to, and this isn't happening right away in section 50, but where we're going with this, and we all know where this ends up, right? That there is, that things become a little more contained and, and things kind of, this magical worldview and these Pentecostal experiences, in some sense, I'll say sadly, die down. Mm-hmm. And, and there is, you, you can see the wisdom of there's the one person who's receiving revelation for the church, and there's still, of course, individual, you know, the personal revelation. But at the same time, when it comes to our own testimony of whether it is the prophet who is the one who receives that revelation for the church, and whether the one who claims to be the prophet receiving that revelation is, in fact, the prophet, is still something that it looks like section 50 already points us to as something that we have to learn for ourselves through the spirit straight from the source. So that's always open to us. I see here some of the discussion we're having kind of fits within the framework of a of a chaos and order dynamic. Mm. Right? We've we've got yeah. this whole this whole religious movement this this primordial chaos of of all of this spiritual experience and rising out of this is this institution order that that tries to you know somewhat maintain the balance you know we still want some of that that ambiguous spiritual experience type of thing but we also kind of need to put it in a bottle a little bit right <laughs> i love that analogy yeah and and so there's there's some order that's trying to be brought to this and and the balance is is very difficult to to get in place right right yeah you know this reminds me i I, if i can share a personal story are you familiar with what's called a spinnaker in the context of sailing i'm not i do did know some stuff about sailing but i haven't heard that term i used to race sailboats so your standard sloop setup right is you have the foresail and the mainsail and i Uh think people are familiar with this right you can picture the triangle with the the foresail and the mainsail but there's also this big balloon-like sail that you see sometimes. It's often colorful. Do you know what I'm talking about? There's yeah, this yeah, big, okay. huge balloon-like sail that goes out in front of the in front of the um, foresail. And in fact, actually, when you use it, the foresail comes down, and you use that instead. You have the main completely boomed out. It's this is only used on downwind legs. So in racing sailboats, I did spinnaker trim. I was the one who who we called it flying that kite. I flew that kite. And how this works is 
you have to, it's really interesting because it, it's about, it's about that, that tension that you were talking about, right? I would have to give the spinnaker line. There are no ropes on boats. So we say line. So I'd have to give it line such that it can completely fill out. And as soon, and I had to watch the edge. And if I saw the edge start to furl and start to curl, then I knew that that sail was about to collapse. Hmm. It was just about to collapse. And once that sail collapses and is in the water, you're looking at having a really hard time winning that race, right? Hmm. So I had to keep it up there. It's like flying a kite. Yeah, you had to kind of give it slack until it starts to look like it's going to fall. And then you had to rein it in. But as soon as you got it reined in, the goal is to let go again. You have to give it slack. You have it has to be able to fill, you know, to get the most out of it. You're racing, right? So this is really on the edge, and I think that that's an analogy too that that shows you the tension that we're talking about, right? Well, that that's really interesting. I'm going to have to think about this for a while, and I'm not going to have enough time on this podcast to think about it. But I think that's a really interesting analogy. Just just like in in terms of the the position of the church as a whole you know and 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 historically as well you know trying to to maintain and and obviously at many times not not maintaining the correct balance between that you know the tension and the the freedom yeah between the order and the chaos so to speak right allowing there to be this spiritual exploration and and experience into the unknown but but also maintaining a, a sense of of order and you know what we even call ordinances right right coming from that same that same concept and and what uh, what we get later in another section I'm trying to remember what it was I think it's coming up soon is is this discussion about spirits and not knowing what is what and and the lord coming back and say yes you know if he obey mine ordinances, right? And so there's always this bringing back to that. Yes, you know, this is a good experience as long as you maintain it within a certain order and so to speak, right? And and this section kind of gets at that. And and one of the one of the things that I see here, you know, referenced early on in the section is Satan trying to deceive. And uh, you know, Shiloh and I have discussed multiple times anytime the adversary or Satan is is brought up this is the voice of the accuser right and and we have it personified as what we might say is the the person lucifer but the concept is is much deeper than that you know and just like you talked about christ being like a title or a type you know satan is a type as well and and this this role gets fulfilled within us just like the role of christ does as well yes and so we have this this Satan accusing voice, and that's how he deceives. And I think that there's something, something there to really be meditated on for a bit. The the idea that accusation is a path to deception. Oh yeah, and that that Christ, you know, when he talks later in this, he talks about how he, you know, at the end of the section, he says, "Fear not, little children, you are mine. I have overcome the world. Ye are." And, and you are of them that the Father hath given me, and none of them that my Father hath given me shall be lost. He he says here in verse twenty nine, 
no, sorry, verse 36, blessed are you who are now hearing these words of mine from the mouth of my servant for your sins are forgiven you. I mean, this is a very different voice from that accusatory Satan voice, right? And so this entire section is trying to, to show us the, this light and darkness, right? And, and it's discussed in these verses as well. And it's saying that you're going to have all types of experiences and some of those experiences you're not going to quite understand. And you can learn, you can learn and, and take good out of them if you turn to Christ, if you turn to the spirit, to the comforter. And uh, I like that the word comforter is used to describe the spirit uh, at least two or three times in this section, which again is in opposition or, or, or I guess the word is opposition. I can't think of, of how I would term that right now to that idea of, of Satan being the accuser and causing confusion among the people. Again, we have this dynamic of the chaos and the order over here in verse 30, not verse 30, is there uh, verse 31, wherefore it shall come to pass that if you behold a spirit manifested that you cannot understand and you receive not that spirit. So here it's like describing a condition of an unknown chaos. What do I do with this when I'm confronted with this chaotic experience of the spirit I don't understand. Ye shall ask the Father in the name of Jesus, and if you give and if he give not unto you that spirit, then you may know that it is not of God. And it shall be given unto you power over that spirit, and you shall proclaim against that spirit with a loud voice that it is not of God, not with railing accusation, that ye be not overcome. Here's that word accusation. You know, referencing back to the uh, beginning of the section where it was talking about Satan using accusation as a way to deceive us, that you be not overcome, neither with boasting nor rejoicing, lest you be seized, you be seized therewith. You know, I, I, again, I see this as like instructions on how to maintain that balance between this, this chaotic spiritual experience that we're trying to navigate and still have a relationship with God without being deceived. And the way that he says that we do it is by not clamping down on it too hard, right? The way that you maintain the balance between chaos and orders is not by having too much order because that's a bad thing as well. Right. Going back to my my sailing analogy, if I, you know, if I try to clamp down too much, if I try to, you know, rein in the sail too much, I'm not getting the most out of it. Right. I can it's it's really about letting go as much as possible. Again, I'm going to have to clamp down a little bit if it starts to look like it's going to fall. It's just going to collapse into the water. But as long as it's not collapsing, then I'm letting go, I'm letting go, I'm letting go. So when I think about the accuser, Hasatan, the accuser, I think, you know, again, as you've said, first of all, if I'm looking for an accuser in my life, typically I find him in the mirror. That's the first place I'm going to see him. <laughs> the next place I'm going to see him is probably in those members of my family whom I live with, right? Most acquainted with your my, my own wife. <laughs> That's right. That's right. My my own wife, my own kids, and and so that's that's a part of me. It's a part of us, just like you said. Just like the Christ is, in some sense, too. We are made in the image of God. So there's that imago dei, that image of God. That that is not something that we can become, or will become, or should become but something that we already are. Right. Metaphysically, that's the reality of who we are and who, who and what we are. And yet we may not be aware of that. And the accuser is going to be the one that says, no, you're not. 
you're not. And by the way, again, my wife is going to tell me this, right? And there's no malice, right? There's a, there's a, I, I'm telling her the same thing, right? We fall into this trap, right? Because we don't believe it of ourselves. And, you know, I know you and I, it, and, and, and by the way, that knowing you, that, 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 that's that part of you that isn't godlike is, is real. Because there is the dark side of the light chasers, as hmm. Debbie Ford called her book. Now, I've never read this book. I've been meaning to. It's a book that was gifted to my wife that in one of our moves a couple moves ago, she was going to let go of, and I grabbed it. That title always spoke to me, The Dark Side of the Light Chasers, right? I like the title just by itself. <laughs> yeah. As light chasers, we have a dark side. And so it's interesting to think about the ancient Israelite conception of Satan, which, by the way, isn't completely foreign to us. I'm speaking here of what we have in our scriptures. If you look at Genesis in the garden, think about it. This is paradise. You're talking about paradise. Adam and Eve are in the presence of God in paradise. And who else is there? Satan Mm. in paradise. Mm. What's up with that? And if you think about Job, and I love Job, you know, it's such a great poem. And it is a poem, by the way. And a poem does is not meant to make propositions to your intellect. A poem is meant to speak directly to your emotions. So if you haven't read a verse translation of that, there's the first one made into English was by Stephen Mitchell. And the introduction to his book is alone is worth the price of the book before you even get into the beautiful poetry. And another one is by Alter, who just Robert Alter, who just finished his translation of the entire Jewish Bible, right? So in that, in the case of Job, there's Satan again working side by side with God, the two of them, right, working together on Job. And so the, the ancient Israelites, they didn't have the conception of Satan as something, you know, something that's to be, um, you know, something foreign to us. And, and let's say as an evil per se, evil. Yes, exactly. This is part of you. And so in the Jungian sense, thinking of Carl Jung again, we, that's something that we have to integrate. We have to be it's able to shadow, integrate yeah. our dark side. Yeah. It's the shadow that he speaks of. So it's not, if we reject it, that's not going to work. We can't try to push it away. We have to accept it and fully embrace it and to integrate it in a healthy way, right? I'm not talking about giving into it. This isn't Oscar Wilde's the only way to yield to a temptation or the only way to, uh, what does he say? The only way to overcome a temptation is to yield to it. <laughs> That's not what I'm saying. Oh, yeah. yeah. He, he was quite the rascal. And yet, by the way, there's actually truth to that because it, it, let's take that probably not in the way he meant it, but the Book of Mormon tells us that there's always going to be temptation. It's not going to go away. The only time that there's not temptation is if we yield to it because now it's not a temptation. Now we're in the sin, Right. If we're if we are striving to avoid sin, there's always going to be temptation. The Book of Mormon tells us this, so we have to be aware mm-hmm. of that. And so the the goal then is not to reject a part, any part of ourselves, or any part of uh, our spouse or our children, right? But to actually integrate that. And so that's that. Those are some of my thoughts about Satan, about the accuser. Yeah, I mean, I think they're all valid here. I kind of spoke to the overall uh, sort of theme of this section, kind of what I got out of it. There's a lot of great little uh, nuggets, I would say, in this section, uh, so to speak. And, And I've always loved these verses that talk about how to preach the gospel. 
Verse 17, Verily I say unto you, He that is ordained of me and sent forth to preach the word of truth by the Comforter in the Spirit of truth, doth he preach it by the Spirit of truth or some other way? And if it be by some other way, it is not of God. Isn't that great? It is. You know, it's it's really profound. I mean, the idea here to me is that the gospel is not not just or not or maybe even barely in part the actual words that we say. There's something that breathes life into it, the spirit, the comforter, that without it, it's just dead, right? You know, we have we have this this body and this spirit. And if the words that that are on the page are sort of that corporeal type of thing, the spirit has to breathe life into that. And if it doesn't, then it's not good. You know, it's not joined together. We talked about Adam and Eve being twain being one flesh, right? These things aren't joined together. And it's an incomplete truth, which is a lie, right? So only when the spirit is able to enliven this gospel, this spirit of truth, does it become truth? And does it become good and of God? And if it's done in another way, which, I mean, let's face it, like maybe 90% of the time scripture is used as a way to attack people rather than to edify, as this later verse says, right? To tear down rather than to edify. And if it's done in some other way, it's not of God. Scripture is used to accuse rather than to comfort, right? And that's that's the contrast I see here in these continual references to the Spirit as the comfort. That's why I like it, how it bring, keeps bringing that word back. Man, that tastes good. That's beautiful. And how often do we get that wrong? We do. It's, it's so easy to get wrong. <laughs> yeah, well... Because all we have to do is omit the spirit, you know? (laughs) Right? Yeah. Boy, I'm just letting that one sink in. We have to be inspired. Notice how I, 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 I took in a deep breath, right? We have to be inspired. That breath of life, that, that inspiration, that, that spirit that, that only God can breathe into us without which we're empty. And those words are empty. You know, going back to section 49, I don't know what Joseph Smith and company thought they were going to accomplish by going to the Shakers and telling them that they were wrong. <laughs> I mean, okay, you know, they got some things wrong and the Lord wants them to go. To, and maybe maybe the Lord thought they would go in the spirit. I don't, And I, we don't even know what they did, by the way. It's not here. At least it's yeah. not in section yeah. 49. I don't know if that's in anywhere else, you know, recorded in church history, what happened. But but certainly you don't just show up and say, you're wrong. That's not going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a certain way for, for that to be done. You know, I you probably meant this because you're a linguist, but I, I I made a connection that I feel really silly for never making connection before, and that's that word inspire. Because spire is from that that root, that Latin root, which is breath, right? Yeah, Spirata. where we get spirit. Yeah, spirit. Mm-hmm. And so inspire you know, is basically to breathe in the spirit, you know, to, to bring life to something. And so anyway, to bring I, the spirit I, I, in, yeah. it's just, it's, it's, yeah, that's cool. I like those linguistic connections. Yeah, me too. So yeah, the, this section really gets into this concept here that as a people with a culture informed by a doctrine 
and teachings that tell us that we have, quote unquote, the truth, we are apt to believe that these stated beliefs that we might enumerate in like articles of faith or or any other way that we want to enumerate our beliefs in discussions in manuals in 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 pamphlets or whatever we we have this culture of of taking that as the gospel when there's more there's always more yeah i mean and and not only is there more but like that in and of itself is actually nothing because it's just it's just dead without the spirit. That's right. Not only is there more, but none of it, even the more included, means anything without the spirit. Mm-hmm. I, I like what you're bringing out here. And the spirit has to have something to inspire, right? So there has to be that word there. There has to be that thing in order for the spirit to to enter it and and enliven it to to our minds. But you know, we've taken the this idea that we quote unquote have the truth, which you know, there's all kinds of kinds of issues with that statement, but at, at, to mean that these, like I said, enumerated or delineated statements of belief are the truth. When this section, which is ostensibly a statement of our belief, says that that can't be the case. Yeah, that the gospel has to be enlivened by the Spirit, or it's nothing. It's not of God. And, you know, going back to those 124,000 prophets and those holy men that we know not of, they brought inspired writings, right? Right. And there are scriptures, just like there are holy men we know not of, we've been told that there are scriptures that we know not of. Well, again, that doesn't have to mean that they're buried somewhere. Right. The fact that we don't know about them may be because we're not open to receiving all of the scriptures, not just because we haven't done enough studying of the Book of Mormon, but because we haven't opened the Quran or the Bhagavad Gita or what have you. Right. Right. And and I personally, I have. And so I would like to testify. I would like to take this opportunity to testify to how much that has, how much that has breathed spirit into me and how much that has deep in my own religious experience, even if I were just taking a comparative perspective, even if I were just finding what we call holy envy, you know, things to to incorporate from other uh, religious uh, traditions, you know, wouldn't it be nice if I were to pray five times a day? Mm. I, I'm only praying three times a day, maybe, you see, but there's but there's even more than that. There are inspired writings. There are holy men that we know not of. There are perhaps 124,000 prophets. I don't know. I'm open. I'm open to receiving. And of course, there are those in all religious traditions, our own included, as we've already covered, that don't bring us these messages with the Spirit. And then there are those who do. And so when I hear those and when I see the fruit, right, by their fruit you shall know them. And so I'm not talking about what's on the news. I'm talking about the the personal experiences I've had in meeting those from other traditions where that spirit is there and how much that has contributed to my experience of God and to my own spiritual practice. And I've gotten so much out of it. And that's that's a lot of what we talk about, Riley and I talk about on the Latter-day Contemplation podcast. Yeah, there, there really is so much there. And I think as Latter-day Saints who... We have this 
this stated belief, going back to that idea, that we are waiting for more scripture. Right. We really need to actually be more open to what we say we're waiting for. Because when Nephi tells us that the Lord will give us line upon line, and when we say we have enough, that's when we're not going to get any more. You know, and we need to really look at ourselves. Have have we said that? You know, have we said that? Not not just out loud, but to God, to ourselves. Have we said, "I have enough"? Mm. Yeah, and and then that's where our progress in in that understanding can can be damned, can be stopped until our that repentance, that change of perspective happens. You know, the the Bible came about in a particular way. In fact, the Old Testament and various parts of the Old Testament came about in in particular ways that were different from how the New Testament came about. And then the Book of Mormon came about in a very different way from how the Bible came about. And it was That's right. because it was different, people said, no, this isn't how scripture works. This isn't how it's supposed to come about. Yeah. And then the Doctrine and Covenants came about in a completely different way from those other That's ones. Right. And because it came about in a different way, people said, this isn't how scripture is supposed to come about. And then the book of Moses that we have came about in a, a, a whole new, completely different kind of way. And people said, a very controversial well, this can't be way. scripture because this isn't how it came about. And then we have the book of Abraham, <laughs> which again came about in a completely different way. And people said, this can't be scripture. This is how scripture comes about, right? Right. How many times has the Lord proven our understanding about how scripture is supposed to come about wrong? <laughs> yeah. And so when we're waiting for scripture to come about in the same way that it's come about before, we might be missing something seriously. We might be, yeah. Yeah, you know, the um you know, the the Quran comes about at a time when you know, first of all, for those unfamiliar with it it's not an easy book to read in in the sense that it isn't this narrative that we're used to again it's a completely different kind of text the only narrative the only sustained narrative in in the quran is the story of joseph in egypt uh well joseph and potiphar right and that's actually a great narrative to go into that and to get more detail the quran comes at a time when we might think especially if we don't know the book and we you know, we've gotten ideas from mistranslations, misinterpretations, misreadings, proof texting, all the same kind of problems that we see Christians of all denominations fall into that same trap with the Bible and with and, and with all of our scriptures. Mm-hmm. We can fall into that trap, into those same traps. But it comes at a time when, when we believe there's a great apostasy. Mm-hmm. And if we look back to Parley P. Pratt and... Uh, George Albert Smith speaking in conference. I don't remember the year. It's in the Journal of Discourses. First, George Albert Smith, followed immediately by Parley P. Pratt. And it's interesting because George Albert Smith, he gets up and you can tell from by reading through the speech that he wasn't planning on talking about Islam and going into the depth that he goes into. And so it's just mind boggling to realize how much he knows about Islam and about the context in which it arises. And he calls Muhammad a prophet and he points to some of the false doctrines. So many think of of Islam as uh, anti-Christian, perhaps, where maybe it's better to think of it as anti-Trinitarian. Right. And so that's why in the 1600s, 
um, the, the Socinianists in England were looking at Islam for precedence in terms of how to think philosophically in an anti-Trinitarian way. And so Bartley P. Pratt gets up after George Albert Smith, who apologizes you know, at the end of his speech. You know, I didn't mean to go on and on about this. And Bartley P. Pratt says, no, let's talk about this some more. So another unprepared speech. Hmm. And they go into this, and it's really interesting. And so you have this text in which these ideas are being, in which, you know, George Albert Smith is saying that this is restoration, that just as Muhammad claimed that he's actually restoring truth. And then who knows what happens with the text? You know, do sure. we have mistranslations? Do we sure. have misinterpretations? Is the text changed? We do have the Sana, uh, the Sana um, palimpsest that shows that maybe the Quran that we have today isn't exactly the Quran that there was before Uthman, etc. right? I don't know. That's kind of beside the point, I guess, but yeah. <laughs> the question is, what truth can I find by the Spirit, right? Right. If there are revealed texts other than the ones that we know about and we're open to them, whether they're already there, whether they're coming, we have to be seeking. And and I'm seeking. I'm seeking, and I find it richly rewarding to be open and to be seeking. And I found so much in those other texts, you know, in the other sacred uh, sacred texts. And one of the one of the best introductions to those, by the way, for for people who might be interested in, you know, dipping their toe in, is actually from a Latter Day Saint scholar. His name is Hardy Grant, and he does the sacred text course for the great books, not great books, the the great courses. Oh yeah, are you familiar with the great courses? Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's a, that's a great course on sacred texts. That's good. I'll ha I'll have to check that out. Well, with uh, section 50 here, it ends with I, – I already read some of these verses here, so I don't necessarily have to come back to them. But I, I love how Christ here again says, I am in your midst, which which is an interesting thing to say when he keeps talking about he's coming. And it's yeah. like, well, wait, are you here or are you coming? And, yeah, I meant um, to ask you about this. Yeah. So, yeah, because you said – earlier you said, you know, he, he says he's coming – Right away, next week, right, is how you put it. Yeah. And yeah. and then he doesn't. And then the question that you raised is, or does he? Right. And maybe maybe if we think about how he shows up in your midst, he says, you're going to go preach and I'm going to be there in your midst. Well, there he is. In the New Testament, he says, uh, when he's going to, uh, before he's crucified, he says, this is what's going to happen. I'm, I'm going to come in your again in, in your lifetime. And then we think that he doesn't, and the, the early church fathers push it back. But he does. He actually comes on the road to a mouse. Yeah. And maybe there's not only one second coming, and maybe there's not only – yeah, it's just not, it's not one event. Right, right. It, it's, it's really a matter of perspective, as with so many things in our relationship with God. And as we repent and our perspective changes, our understanding changes, and our eyes are opened – to new things that we didn't see before, which is appropriate. It's the way it should be. I love the way you brought up repenting in a context where we weren't talking about sin. Oh, yeah. We don't have to be in sin, so to speak, uh, to, to repent. Repenting is about seeing things in a new way. And of course, you know, if we define sin correctly, as we already have earlier, right, as just missing the mark, and we don't make it something, it's such a loaded term, right? It is. Um, yeah. Just like Satan, and we've been talking about both. If we just make it as, you know, we're really not seeing, we're not looking in the right way. 
And if we turn and look in the right way, that's what we mean by so looking in the wrong way, looking and, and therefore seeing in the wrong way, we can think of as sin and turning as the Bible dictionary or that's the Bible dictionary, right? Yeah. Defines repentance, then we are seeing now in the right way and we're seeing in a new way. And that's that's what it is. That's all there is. It goes right well with these last two verses, you know, and the day cometh that you shall hear my voice and see me and know that I am. Mm. Watch therefore that ye may be ready. Even so, amen. Amen. You know, Ben, if if you're um we've gotten to the to the last verse before we end, I'd like to actually go back. Where was that? You read something about the little children? Yeah, verse 41. What verse was that? Verse 41. I well, love well, that. Well, I mean, the little children, actually, he says little children in verse 40. So Okay. Behold, you're little children. And so I just wanted to point out that uh, uh, linguistically, I know you like this stuff as much as I do. It turns out that discipulos, the Greek that we, that, that by the way, is cognate with the English disciples, right? Discipulos, disciples. It it actually means little children. Hmm. It's actually, it's related to um, a kid, I think you know, in terms of like the animal. So, and if not, it's it's at least, now I'm doubting myself, but it does mean <laughs> my little children, right? The, the disciples are little children and the Lord is the master. And they're just learning. We're just learning. We're just trying to see what it is that he's pointing us to. If we think about Jesus on the road to a mouse, you know, he called these people to follow him, his disciples, they left their work and they followed him and they think, okay, this is it. It's the Messiah. This is a thing. And then the Romans crucify him and they think, well, maybe it wasn't a thing. And they go home and their heads are hanging low and they're on their way back to a mouse. And, you know, they're going to face the people who are going to ridicule them because you left your work to follow this guy. And it turns out it's not a thing. And then this guy shows up. He's like, hey, what's going on? And they're like, you don't know what's going on. It's like, why are you guys look so sad? You know, why are we sad? You know what's going on? Are you some stranger? You're foreign or what? Right? And so they tell him what's going on. And he starts quoting them from the scriptures and telling them basically that not that they had it right, that they really understood what it was he was saying to them all along and lost the plot when he was crucified and sort of lost the faith, you know, but rather that no, they never actually understood at any point. They they really didn't get what he was saying to them. They never did. And by the way, who's walking with them but Jesus in a second coming? There he is. Right. And they don't even recognize him. And as soon as they do, he's gone. There's just so much there to think about. Do you have any any thoughts about that? Well, verse 40, you know, you said the little children and it says you cannot bear all things now. Mm. You must grow in grace and in the knowledge of the truth. This this goes back to what we were talking about earlier with why does the Lord let us think things that aren't quite, you know, on the mark, so to speak. Yeah. And and it's like, well, <laughs> your your kids, when they ask you questions about complex, difficult things, you give them the best answer you can given their current level of understanding. And if you gave them the entire answer, they just, not only would they not understand it, they would be even more confused. Right. I mean, come on, we have, if you don't have kids, you, you've, you've talked to kids, right? Yeah. This is not that hard to understand. So that reminds me earlier, you said, 
he only asks the question that that we sorry he only answers the question that we ask him yeah right i was thinking does he I, I understand exactly what you meant by that, and I agree with you. But sometimes when you think about how you talk to your kids, at least it's true for me, and I've seen it in others, right? A lot of times, oftentimes, we don't answer the question that they ask us. We answer the question that they should have asked us, that we sure. think they should have <laughs> yeah. asked us because we sure. know, right? There's that too. So in 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 looking at, I think this is important because in reading Scripture, oftentimes, and I think this is something that Shiloh has brought out in, in your in episodes that you've talked with him, you know, that you've podcasted together, we have to come to an understanding of what, what is the question that brought out the answer before us in the scriptures? Mm -hmm. And so maybe that question isn't the one on the page. Oftentimes there is no question. So that's the point of the exercise. I've got this statement in front of me in the scriptures. What question was asked that brought about this revelation? All right. So understanding that. And so it may not be the it may not be the obvious one or even the one that's there. If it is there, we may have to we may have to figure out what is the question that that was um, as I was saying that that it it was turned into right. There was the question that 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 the child had, and then there's the question that the father answers right. Yeah, and 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 sometimes when we read these these sections like this you know maybe there was one question in mind but but uh when they were were given but we might have a different a totally different question on our minds that is answered by it you know and Absolutely. and i think anybody that that has spent some time in the scriptures has definitely experienced that Absolutely. where they they've they've pulled something from the scriptures that answers a question they had that it is not even obvious was ever even asked by anybody who wrote that scripture. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. So that's right. Let's not forget that sometimes that's how personal revelation works. Yeah. Well, Christopher, I um I think we're we're about at the the end of what we're going to discuss here. Obviously, there's so much more that that could be said here, but uh I I really appreciate all of your insights and the time that we had uh, discussing these sections. I I look forward to uh, Shiloh's feedback as well on, on any of this. And um, I look forward to hearing from people that listen to this and, and, and have read these sections and, and what they think about as well. Anyway, yeah. Any other things to add, Christopher? No, just same here. Okay, great. Well, uh, until next time, I'm Ben Peterson. I'm Christopher Hurtado. Thanks. Thanks.